Well, it's one of those days. Literally, workers just showed up at the house right as I go on air. My wife is not home. They're just going to have to deal without me. <laughs> oh, well. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, and we got a jam-packed show for you. And you know, I wasn't going to do this out of the gate, but I just decided I was going to do this out of the gate. Uh, I, I feel compelled to have this conversation, and I I want you guys to 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 just bear with me here. I've just I've decided it is necessary. I I would like to those of you who are not white just just please stand by for a few moments. Uh, if you'll allow, I I need to address the the white members of the audience. I happen to know I have a very diverse audience, but I need to discuss this with the white people in the audience first. This is important. Dear white people, please stop. I I, I appreciate your allyship as the, the word is being used, ridiculous phrase, the allyship uh, with the black community. But you know what? Uh, I would rather hear from the black community right now about what's happened to them in American society. Uh, I, I don't need white people to chime in with their restaurant recommendations on how to support black businesses. And I don't need white people to chime in with which television shows I need to stream to appreciate black culture or which books to read. Do you know the number one book on racism in America up until this week has been a book by a white woman telling white people that at birth they're racist. Hitler would use a similar argument against the Jews were he alive right now. In fact, hey, that is an argument from Germany in the 1930s that, that Jews were bad at birth. And here comes a white woman to tell white people how bad they are at birth. And she gets a number one book, not by black people buying it, but by white people buying it in New York City so they can feel bad about themselves in order to feel good about themselves. What we have right now are a group of white people, mostly liberal, in the United States of America who have hijacked the, the conversation on race relations in the United States so that they can feel good about themselves by having the conversation and then go back to their lives. You see the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies telling us how bad it is in virtue signaling through emails to our inbox to tell us that they themselves will take a stand against racial injustice. And do you see any of these white CEOs who apparently benefited from the culture, uh, giving up their jobs and allowing black Americans to have their jobs? No, you do not. What you see is their commitment to do stuff as long as it doesn't affect them or their bottom line. You see a bunch of white people in this country who have long advocated for universal socialist health care and government-run programs and higher taxes on the rich and, and the end of private education and the like, all advocating the exact same thing they've always advocated for, for every solution to every problem that they've never liked. It is not a solution when you offer it every single time for every single thing from environmentalism to racial injustice to who knows what the left always offers the exact same solutions for this stuff and it's not really a solution it's just what they want it makes them feel good and now you've got a bunch of white people out there hand-wringing telling us what we need to do to be allies and what we need to do to be anti-racist as if they might know how about you shut up and actually listen a little more 
What I know from my experience, I was in South Carolina in the 2012 presidential election in the primary campaign with Roland Martin, also of CNN, and stood outside a hotel and watched as people checking into the hotel handed Roland in his suit their luggage, expecting him to check them in, while I, a man in a suit right next to him, was handed no luggage. I, a a white dude standing outside the Hotel Monaco in Washington, D.C. once a few years ago, watched as a black man, well-dressed, outside the hotel, was trying to flag down a cab, clearly going somewhere, and the cabs were passing him by. And when I decided to hail a cab, the cab pulled over. He was outraged. I told him he could have the cab. And when I did, the cab driver cussed me out and drove away. But, you know, I've seen it. I know it exists, and some of you do too, and, and and tell the stories of what you've seen. And what did you do? But I, the, the lecturing from a group of people who all they're doing is virtue signaling. You know, the number of white people have suddenly decided they, they like reparations and an impossible to implement thing that would bankrupt the country and just raise more grievances. And suddenly you got a bunch of white people saying, hey, yeah, let's do it. Why? Because they know it'll never actually be done. But they can be on supposedly some right side of history if they advocate for doing it when it's really not going to get them anything. The whole thing is absolutely ridiculous to me to see them doing this, and yet they're doing it because they want to feel good about themselves. They don't actually want to fix the problem, and that's the thing. If they wanted to fix the problem, maybe they would go into their local community and try to solve problems in their local community. Do you people really believe that Washington, D.C. is somehow going to solve the problem uh, when Washington, D.C. is one of the places that helped contribute to the problem? Do you really believe that your state government that has caused problems is really going to solve the problem? No. You know where the problem is going to be solved? It's going to be solved around the kitchen table with you and your friends building relationships. How many of you people who are lecturing the rest of us, white people who are lecturing the rest of us on what we need to do to get in touch with the black community actually have black friends? How many of you actually have people come and break bread around your kitchen table uh, and have conversations and see that they are a part of your family and a part of your circle of friends with your family? How many of you actually do these things? How many of you are just going all woke so that you can feel good about yourselves? And it's a very paternalistic thing. Where's this tweet? Megan Kelly put something up. Uh, yes, I know. Megan Kelly, she put something up. Where is it? Uh referencing an article in City Journal. Wokeness perpetuates the perception that black lives really are inferior. The implication is that black life is hard, poverty, scary, and sad. Woke whites aren't saying black lives matter. They're saying it's up to them to make black lives better. I actually have a black call screener in my my second program. And last night had a very interesting phenomenon. I basically said the exact same thing I'm saying to you now, and a white guy called and wanted to tell me that I was wrong and that I should listen to those who are committed allies. And do you know the guy had the audacity to send me a note through Instagram to tell me that I should be allowed to have him on the program so that he can tell about his allyship and he didn't understand why my call screener wouldn't let him on. My call screener who is black and was giving me amens for saying this, who's tired of the white people who feel like they need to chime in to make themselves feel better better on the subject. And that's what all of this is. It's a bunch of people trying to make them feel better on the subject. It's a bunch of people backing solutions that they've always backed for every such thing and saying, oh, now this time and this issue, this is what's going to work for this particular cause. I think I've had enough of all the lecturing. I I, I think I have. We have real issues in this country. We have real problems. 
There are matters of racial injustice in the United States of America. I have seen it with my own eyes. It is not something where a government solution is going to come in and solve the problem. If anything, government will make it worse and build up even more resentment. That's part of the problem that we're having to deal with as a society right now. It is going to be up to you and it's going to be up to me. Do you know what you do? Do you know what the solution is? In all honesty, it is you in your neighborhood and your community working in your community to improve your community. And if you improve your community and I improve my community and the rest of it, guess what's going to happen? We will improve our state. And once we've improved our state and everyone does it in their states, we improve our nation. Having Washington do grand and glorious things, the, 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 the epicenter of what's wrong with America is not going to fix it. Have you seen how dysfunctional Washington is anyway? Everybody's sitting on their hands saying, hey, let's do this. Let's do reparations. Let's do more affirmative action. Let's do all of these things. Let's defund the police. Let's let government do it and not us. Every solution offered by good white liberals out there on this subject right now has everything to do with them not lifting a finger and making government do it instead. I I come back all the time to the scripture in Jeremiah. Seek the welfare of the city in which you live and pray for it and there you'll find your welfare. And how many of the people who are advocating all these solutions from Washington, D.C. are getting their hands dirty in their local community? How many know where their food bank is? How many know where their battered women's shelter is? How many know where, where any of these are? How, how many people are engaged in their communities on these things? How many people are really willing to actually have real friends? Not, not the friends that you have because you decide, oh, I need black friends. But the friends you have who are actually a part of your life. Don't go out and seek someone to have a friendship with someone just because they're black or Hispanic. Actually go out and have friends and engage yourself in such a way in your community that you make friends with people who don't look like you and don't think like you. Be a part of your community. Washington, D.C. is not going to solve the problem. Washington, D.C. is the place that propped up slavery for a good long while in this country. And Washington, D.C. is the place that turned a blind eye to Jim Crow laws in this country. And you know what? Your state governments did it as well. And guess what? If you're a Yankee listening from from out of Georgia, guess what? Northern states have just as many racists as southern states. In fact, to some degree, northern states have bigger problems than southern states because southern states have had to deal with this for a while. And northern states have gotten to pretend that it was the southern states that were the problem all wrong. And they never had the problem when they did. But can we stop the overwrought lectures of a group of white people trying to hijack the conversation, not to actually make it better, but to make themselves feel better, because that's really what's happening right now. There will be no solutions except the solutions they've always wanted, because those solutions really have nothing to do with the problem at hand. They're just the things they've always wanted. And the left have this amazing ability, as do some people on the right, to hijack conversations with their preferred policy solutions in ways that advance their policy solutions no matter what the issue is, whether it's environmentalism, whether it is healthcare, whether it is racial injustice, whether it is crime, whether it is education, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's national security, you name it, it's always the same things. Raise taxes, redistribute wealth, give universal socialist health care. On and on we go. When you change, when every issue comes up and you offer the same solutions, maybe it's not the problem that's the problem, but you who are the problem. 
when you have Fortune 500 companies lecture us on wokeness and they don't actually want to do anything substantive, they're going to throw money at the problem and not make any changes or or have their white CEO give up his job for someone else. Uh, Maybe they're not really being serious. Maybe we're all being played. I would like to think that we will take seriously what has gone on in this country in the last number of weeks. I would like to take seriously that most people actually really are concerned when a police officer puts his knee on a man's neck for over eight minutes and the guy ultimately dies. I would like to take seriously the idea that we actually do need some police reform in this country. And in fact, most police officers I talk to would agree with me that there are some police reforms that are needed in this country. I would like to believe that we can take all of these things seriously. I would like to believe that all of us can be focused on these things. And I would like to believe that all of us can have conversations even when, and this is a key here, even when we wind up disagreeing about the proposed solutions because we will disagree on what to do. But I can tell you what I'm seeing right now when the number one book in America on racial injustice is a white woman trying to tell white people that at birth they are somehow inferior and racist, that at birth white people need to realize that racism is in their genes or some such uh, so that white people can read this book and feel good about this because we've read the painful truth. We are really the problem. We are really bad. We are the ones. It, it, this diversity stuff, it, it, it's a it's a racket. It, it's, it's white people profiting off the guilt of other white people is what a lot of this stuff is. I mean, go to your typical college campus and look at the women and gender studies professors, for God's sakes. It's just a grievance mongering is all it is. And we got professional grievance mongers out there who want to feel good about themselves by tearing down other people and claiming that they're somehow engaged. And it's all typically a bunch of white liberals who are doing it. There are problems in this country. And it is amazing to me how a bunch of white people who want to feel good about themselves have decided to hijack the conversation and make it about themselves as opposed to what's actually happening in the black community. And then along the way, pay no attention to what's happening in Chicago on a regular basis. Pay no attention to what's happening in the black family. Well, that's just paternalism anyway. Pay no attention to what's happening in our public schools. They just need more money. You know what? Pay attention to your local community. Pay attention to your church. Do you have diverse voices from the pulpit? Because I got to tell you, I I have learned in my experience in life that what happens is uh, black and white pastors all preach from the same Bible, but they put emphasis on different syllables of scripture because of different experiences. You want to be a more rounded, well-rounded person? Find some diversity there in the pulpit. You can be theologically sound and emphasize different syllables of scripture. Be engaged in your community. But please, for the love of God, stop lecturing me and everyone else on what we need to do, say, think, read, watch, or eat to be in allyship with the black community uh, just so you feel better and virtue signal on social media. Your little black square on Instagram means nothing if you're not actually going to do something in your own community to improve the situation in your own community. And if you don't have sweat equity, give real equity, give money, support local causes, be involved in some way, but just stop with the preening on social media. And that's all I've got to say about that. So how are y'all today? The phone number is 877-973-7425. That's 877-97-ERIC. Believe it or not, yes, I was able to structure that now. 
what was I supposed to be talking about in this? It wasn't that. I assure you of that. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about. The the Braves. I read this morning WRGA's uh, website, uh, our affiliate up in Rome, the, the Rome Braves. They're not going to be playing any games. You know, baseball, basketball, and, and I, I'm I'm actually really disappointed in all of our professional sports right now. It's it's sad. At least baseball's coming back at some point. But it's really remarkable to me that you've got 4th of July this weekend, and none of the major sporting teams could actually get together and say, hey, you know what? Let's actually try to play a game and and, and lift people's spirits up. Nope, all, all about them and their money and their negotiations, not, not actually about uh, the fans. No fan service out there. And then you got Adam Silver in charge of the NBA. Listen to this nonsense. Adam, last time you joined us for a Tom 100 Talks back in October, um, the NBA was embroiled in an international diplomatic crisis after Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey um, tweeted in favor of Hong Kong, which potentially damaged your business relationship with China. Has that relationship improved? I, I feel it has. Um, you know, our, our games are on Tencent, um, the distribution platform in China. Um, you know, we've continued a dialogue um, with the Chinese, with our business partners there, in certain cases with certain government officials. And, you know, we, we're just going to keep at it. Uh, we've had a long history in China, and certainly this is a bump in the road in, in our relations. Obviously, I think we all understand each other. You know, as I've said before, you know, we come to China with a certain set of core American values and principles. And I understand also they have a different form of government and they have a different view of how things have been done, how, how things should be done. And, and and hopefully we can find mutual respect for each other. Uh, yeah, mutual respect for a Chinese regime that runs concentration camps. That That's that's what he wants. You know, so I'm going to interview John Bolton this afternoon. I know. And, and that that's the question I want to ask of John Bolton. Um, why did you not quit? when you found out the president was turning a blind eye to concert. I mean, that's one of his claims in his book. One of the claims that Bolton makes in his book is that the president learned that there were concentration camps in China and he didn't want to disrupt his Chinese trade deal. So he turned a blind eye to them and decided to do nothing. Why would you not quit? I I, I, I want to ask him these things. Uh, I, I keep hearing people answering, asking John Bolton questions from the position of the president is terrible um, why didn't you do more to to stop the president? And I've been such a Bolton fan all of my life, and I'm, I've been reading through his book, and I'm just disappointed in him. If you really thought it was this bad, why did you stick it out? Uh, so that you could have your way with public policy, and so you turned a blind eye to things you claimed the president was doing, and then you didn't want to help uh, steer it. it. It sounds to me like you were want, you wanted a book deal, and you didn't actually you didn't really care. And I want to ask him those questions. I mean, I've been reading through the Bolton book in the run-up to this interview, and he says all these things about the president that are bad, and I'm just thinking that actually kind of reflects worse on Bolton than on the president, that he didn't do anything, he didn't say anything until he got a book deal, he stuck it out as long as he was getting his way, and then he wanted to write a tell-all book after years of of condemning people who wrote tell-all books. He has become exactly what he condemned others for doing, and I'm I'm fascinated by that. And I want to ask him questions. I'm disappointed reading the book. If things were that bad and he said nothing, uh, did he not contribute to those problems? 
were they really problems? I'm I'm interested. Uh, and, and I see all these people just out to get the president with these interviews, and I just I man, I got questions as a conservative uh, with, with why would Bolton go down this road and and do nothing until he got a book deal. Uh, and, and the same here with Adam Silver and the NBA wants to turn a blind eye to what's going on in China and say it's just a differences of governance. No, one country runs concentration camps and you're turning a blind eye to those. Hello there. All right. The phone number, should you choose to call in and air strongly held <laughs> questions, the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-973. 7425. Uh, real quick, in the third hour today, I, I, I'm i tired of having to talk about the virus with everybody. And I, I decided uh, my wife um, follows a, a, a epidemiological researcher from Emory University on Instagram. Uh, and I, I reached out to the lady and asked if she would come on. She actually is an expert. She studies the the antibodies, she studies the vaccines, she studies all this stuff, and, and talk to her and get insight from her on what's actually going on out there. I, I, I very interesting person to talk to, uh, and so in the third hour, I'm going to do that with her and, and just let her talk about what medical advances are on the horizon and stuff. The, things are not looking good out there, but they're looking good at the same time, uh, and what I mean by that is the number of cases in the country is skyrocketing, and the good news is that it is mostly younger people and and that's not great news but it's good news in the fact that younger people tend to have better outcomes and and maybe we're giving herd immunity to younger people to a to an extent uh 20 and 30 somethings the problem is if they then get into a working population or an, an elderly population they could spread it we're starting to see hospital hospitalization go back up again uh including here in Georgia the rates of people in hospitals is going back up um, we'll get to more data on that later. Uh, you do need to know that the payroll protection program ran out yesterday, uh, but the Senate voted yesterday to extend it and allow more applications. The House of Representatives still has to do this. Uh, they have not yet in the House of Representatives passed the legislation, but there are signs pointed to them being allowed to. Um, if you need have questions on the payroll protection program, uh, or frankly, if your business needs access to, to large credit right now, and I'm talking millions of dollars in credit, uh, the people that you should be reaching out to right now are the Frost family at First Liberty Building and Alone over Noonan. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. Uh, you can go to them. Their, their number and address is there. You can reach out to them. Uh, you can't apply online for payroll protection program right now because they stopped taking applications yesterday. But assuming Congress extends the program again, like they say they're going to do, you would be able to. But if you are a business, they, they don't work with individuals. They work with businesses, uh, and they work with businesses that need access to large capital. Uh, go to FirstLibertyGA.com and check them out. Now, speaking of uh, large amounts of money, the New York City police budget has been cut by a billion dollars. The New York City police says they are defunding the police. Well, they're not really defunding the police. This is See, this goes back to the virtue signaling of liberal white people who want to act like they're doing something without actually doing anything. Now, what, pray tell, do you mean by that, Erickson? Well, well, they have cut a billion dollars from the New York City Police Department yesterday. It is an effort to defund the police. 
New York City did not cut a billion dollars from the New York City Police Department. They transferred the billion dollars from the police department budget to the Board of Education budget because that's what they spend on school safety. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has even uh, come out and said it's disingenuous. Let me read you her quote. Defunding the police means defunding the police. It does not mean budget tricks or funny math. It does not mean moving school police officers from the New York Police Department budget to the Department of Education budget so that the exact same police remain in the schools. It does not mean counting overtime cuts as cuts, even as New York Police Department ignores every attempt by city council to curve overtime spending and overspends on overtime anyway. It does not mean hiring more police officers while cutting more than $800 million from New York City schools. If these reports are accurate, then the proposed cuts are disingenuous illusions. It's not a victory. The fund to defund the fight to defund the police continues. And you know, she's actually not wrong. That's what they did. They took a billion dollars out of the New York City. First of all, fathom that a billion dollars in New York City for the police and transferred it to the New York City uh, Board of Education so that they can continue to pay the exact same police officers to patrol the exact same schools. Well, the Democratic Socialists of America are upset. Safe. Having police officers in school don't make them feel safe. In fact, it makes them feel like criminals. So the fact that they're parading this as a victory um, by increasing police presence in schools is really upsetting in this moment. Uh, and, and Bianca, this whole issue of how the uh, police department grew into such a, an octopus. Back in the Giuliani days, they first merged the transit police and the housing police, and then they merged the school safety officers into the police department. So this is like uh, beginning to go back to where it was years ago, but without dealing with the actual issue of the number of police that have remained largely increased, even as crime decreased throughout the last 20 years. This whole issue of how the city council and the mayor still refuse to deal that there's too many uniformed police in New York City. Yeah, there's too many uniformed police in New York City. And furthermore, when we talk about defunding the NYPD, the other part of that is to fully fund social services. I can tell you out of the encampment, it's obvious. We have some of the most vulnerable members of our community coming out to have their voices heard and and participate in this encampment. And it's clear that what they're saying they need is services, mental health services, social services, uh, adequate housing, you know, affordable health care, you know, quality education. These are the things that the community is crying out for. And so it's not good enough to move money around and fancy accounting tricks. It's not good enough to just defund the NYPD even. We have to meet that with... um, services that are fully funded as well so yeah they 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 have encampments uh, antifa encampments and they want the police in new york city defunded because they don't feel safe with the police by the way i i i do believe that if i saw a police officer put his knee on someone's neck for eight and a half, over eight and a half minutes. And then that guy dies. I'd be concerned about police training, which I am concerned about police training. The police officers I talk to are concerned about police training. They're afraid that guys like that give them a bad name and and everybody needs more training. And on and on it goes. Um, But the idea that we need less police in New York City, you know, crime is on the rise in New York City. Crime is actually on the rise in Atlanta in the last few weeks because the police have slowed down and people are taking advantage of it. 
I, I assure you that this is going to be a problem for the Democrats. I, and I, I need to get political here for just a minute. Uh, the Trump team, by the way, has decided to shake up the campaign. They're moving the guy who's in charge of rallies uh, to do legal work for the campaign. The president's upset with the Tulsa rally and the turnout. Uh, we, we will see where it goes from there. I suspect more shakeups are coming. The most troubling thing is that Jared Kushner calls the shots on the campaign. And I, I don't really have a lot of faith in Jared Kushner to get things right on the campaign. And that should be a troubling sign to all of you that Jared Kushner is in charge. And the polling out of Arizona is bad for the president. Arizona is one of the most Republican states. It hasn't voted for a Democrat for president. And Joe Biden is ahead in every poll in the state. And uh, insert my previous comments on, on polling in the summer. If the election were held today, Joe Biden probably would win. And if things don't change on the campaign, Trump campaign, then probably Joe Biden will win. But the Trump campaign seems to be getting it. Hogan Gidley, the White House press secretary, deputy White House press secretary, is going to the campaign today, effective immediately, to be the national press secretary for the campaign. That's good. He's been on this program several times. I know and like Hogan very much. Uh, we, we've known each other for a number of years, and he will be great. they got to make some changes. Let's not deny it. At least they recognize they've got to make some changes. But this is a problem. This defund the police effort is a problem for the Democrats. If Joe Biden wins in November, God forbid, Joe Biden wins in November, the central galvanizing force that has united the Democrats together and held them in a tight magnetic grip is Donald Trump. Have you ever played with electromagnets? Have you ever have you ever played with electromagnets? Uh, electromagnets are kind of neat. Uh, I, I remember in, in sixth grade, Mr. Middlebrooks, my my sixth grade teacher, brought in this electromagnet. It was two giant pieces together, and you you flipped on a battery switch, and the pieces just clamped together. You could not pry those things apart. And the moment the electricity turned off, the, they just fell apart. They're, I mean, you could you could just hit them together. And, and they wouldn't stick. The moment you turn on the electricity, though, I mean, you couldn't break them apart. You could not. That was the contest. Everyone in the room, and I actually realized I could slide them apart, but I couldn't break them apart. I couldn't pull them apart. You couldn't pull backwards. Uh, electromagnetism, it is a force. The, the, the weak and the strong electromagnetic force, the strong force, it is strong stuff. And those that magnet, it's not going to come apart. Those two magnets, as long as you got the electricity flowing. The moment the electricity goes away, though, nothing, no magnet at all. And that's what Donald Trump is. Donald Trump is the electricity that is holding together the Democratic coalition. And if he goes away in November or he goes away in four years, that coalition falls apart. You can't put them back together. They won't stick together. It's going to be interesting to watch the crack of the Democratic Party. You know, for years and years and years and years, for years, the media has fixated on the crack up of the Republican, the coming civil war of the Republican Party and on and on it goes. And there have been problems in the Republican Party and Donald Trump exposed the problems in the Republican Party. Look at the Republican Party collapsing right now. The number of Republican incumbents who have retired, or they, they've left uh, the ones who are losing primaries. There is a real crack up of the Republican Party. And I'm telling you people that when the president, if the president loses, if the president loses in November, the, the crack up will be fierce against Trump supporters. 
there will be blowback against Trump supporters. The, the very Trump supporters who have wanted to cancel dissent against the president within the party will see themselves canceled. They will be turned on quickly. So many, this is one of the craziest phenomenon within the Republican Party right now. You go to private parties with some of the people who hump the president's leg most ostentatiously on TV, and behind the scenes, they can't stand the guy. And then they seethe with resentment, and they belittle his supporters. I mean, look, I'm just going to be honest with you that I, I, I think some, some, some of them are stupid. I think a lot of them, though, actually have gravitated to the president because everybody else ignored them. I mean, let, let's be honest here. The, the, media, the media believes that every Trump supporter is a hick and a rube. Every Trump supporter is, is a racist. You know why you know why so many Trump supporters exist? Because for years and years both parties lied to these people and actually made their lives worse and decided because they were white and Christian, uh, they weren't worth paying attention to because everybody else had to be pandered to. And these people got mad as hell that they were being ignored, left on the white wayside, seeing their families collapse, drug addiction in their families, failing schools that they were having to go to, jobs going away, and here comes Donald Trump and set a pox on all their houses. They're like, Yeah, these people have screwed us over. We're going with you. And they went with Donald Trump, and they will stand by their man until the bitter end. And I, I, by God, I feel sorry for some of them. I do. Because the left and the, the Democrats and Republicans alike are going to turn on them. Because they seethe with resentment that these people took over one of the established parties in Washington, D.C. And there's going to be a reckoning for them. And the people who have dripped with contempt are the people in Washington, D.C. who have done the dog and pony show on the stage to placate the ego of the president, and they're going to be there when he goes. And they've been seething with contentment at what they believe is their humiliation at the hands of these people who live in trailers and drive pickup trucks. And I hope a candidate comes along who can do a better job than the president has done on recognizing the grievances of the president's supporters, the legitimate grievances of the president's supporters, of which there are many, and trying to find a path forward for them and everyone else that doesn't belittle them, that doesn't hold them in contempt, but also doesn't hold in contempt others. There's going to be a reckoning in that. But it's going to be nothing compared to the reckoning of the Democratic Party. I have so many Democrats who I talk to to try to get a sense of what's happening in that party, and they all say, none of us want to defund the police. It's the Democratic Socialists who want to defund the police. And I'm like, y'all let the Democratic Socialists into your party. You nearly gave Bernie Sanders a nomination, and he's not even a member of the Democratic Party. He's a Democratic Socialist. You let in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's trying to hijack your party and beat people in primaries, and y'all have turned a blind eye to this. You have let in the very thing that's going to destroy you. And when Donald Trump goes away, he is the electricity in that electromagnet of the Democratic Party that holds all the pieces of the, of the Democratic Party together. The moment that electricity goes away, the whole Democratic Party breaks into pieces. And, you know, at least with the Republican Party, uh, as badly fractured as it is, there are things that hold the Republican Party together. Uh, there is a general sentiment of cultural conservatism in most of the Republican Party that holds it together. There isn't in the Democratic Party because the predominant people of the Democratic Party are black and they're culturally conservative. 
even if they don't vote Republican. Most of them are Christian, and the white liberals in charge of the Democratic Party who have hijacked the conversation on race have hijacked the Democratic Party and turned it into a secular atheist movement that is not only hostile to other people who actually have genuine faith beliefs, but also systematically prop up Planned Parenthood that is hell-bent on exterminating half the black population in America through abortion. The day of reckoning is coming the moment Donald Trump goes away, and it is going to be a sight to behold. And I don't know that the media is ever going to really cover it that much because the media tries to avoid any sort of uh, disparagement of the Democratic Party. But the day is coming, and it is going to be a sight for all of us to behold. Well, Chaz is no more. The city of Seattle has decided to, to close down Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. The hipsters started killing each other. They had to shut it down. But it only came, the mayor only decided to act after they started protesting outside her house, and, and she says, uh, scared her kids. Oh, boy. Um, and and the, the hipsters are upset. By the way, uh, there is some uh, minute breaking news, but worth noting, Ed Henry from Fox News has just been terminated. Um, He has apparently uh, allegedly been, uh, he was accused of uh, sexual misconduct in the office. And um, so he has been terminated. And there you have it. Uh, Washington Times reporting. Uh, Ed Henry, Fox News anchor, terminated following investigation into sexual misconduct allegations. Yeah, disappointing to hear. Um, all right, we got other news to talk about. I, I so I want to read you guys something. A guy has a book coming out. I, I'm actually interested in it. Um, he actually wrote this at Forbes, and then Forbes editor got involved and decided to to block people from viewing it. Let me read you this. So, and, and part of this, I suspect, is because it is real book promotion uh, and wasn't actually what was it news so much as book promotion. But now let me read you this. On behalf of environmentalists everywhere, I would like to formally apologize for the climate scare we created over the last 30 years. Climate change is happening. It's just not the end of the world. It's not even our most serious environmental problem. I may seem like a strange person to be saying all this. I've been a climate activist for 20 years and an environmentalist for 30. But as an energy expert asked by Congress to provide objective expert testimony and invited by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC of the United Nations, to serve as an expert reviewer of their assessment report, I feel obliged to apologize for how badly environmentalists have misled the public. Here are some facts few people know. Humans are not causing a sixth mass extinction. The Amazon is not the lungs of the world. Climate change is not making natural disasters worse. Fires have declined 25% around the world since 2003. The amount of land we use for meat, humankind's biggest use of land, has declined by an area nearly as large as Alaska. The buildup of wood fuel and more houses near forests, not climate change, explains why there are more and more dangerous fires in Australia and California. Carbon emissions are declining in most rich nations and have declined, been declining in Britain, Germany, and France since the mid-70s. Netherlands became rich, not poor, while adapting to life below sea level. We produce 25% more food than we need, and food surpluses continue to rise as the world gets hotter. 
habitat loss and the direct killing of wild animals are bigger threats to species than climate change. Wood fuel is far worse for people and wildlife than fossil fuels. Preventing future pandemics requires more, not less, industrial agriculture. I know the above facts will sound like climate denialism to many people, but that just shows the power of climate alarmism. In reality, the above facts come from the best available scientific studies, including those conducted by or accepted by the IPCC, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, the International Union of the Conservation of Nature, and other leading scientific bodies. This is a guy who's been an environmental activist for years, and he's writing this, and and Forbes magazine actually took it down from their website. And he's blasting climate hysteria. The climate hysteria. Do you know that that Bill Weir guy on CNN, he had a a kid, didn't want to have a kid, but wound up having a kid, and uh, wrote an apology to his kid for destroying the planet. Uh, that that kid, this is, and, and that's why he didn't want a kid. He didn't want to add to his carbon footprint or bring a kid into a collapsing world. The, the, the amount of fatalism in environmental, it really is a terrible religion, is it not? Uh, that there is no salvation for you as long as there are still heretics left, and, and you need to take out the heretics in order to survive. Uh, that That's the climate, that, that's secularism in and of itself. As long as there are heretics out there, you yourself can't be saved. You got to go out and get them. Uh, and man, they are eating this guy alive for daring to say these things, but he's not wrong, people. He's not wrong. Every once in a while, you get someone who says, what do you mean by they're overplaying their hand? What What do you mean by that? Well, <laughs> about to tell you. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you want to be a part of the program, uh, I'm sorry, I'm saying that too fast. 877-973-7425. Every once in a while, I encounter someone. When I say the Democrats are overplaying their hand, I'll say, what do you mean by overplaying their hand? What I mean is they're going to do something. They're going to go so far thinking that everybody's with them on this. And then there's going to be a visceral reaction from people. And they're going to swing back in the other direction. In case in point, if you were to come up to me and punch me in the face, you would be guilty of assault and battery. If, if you engage in some capacity of, of assaulting me, you would be committing a felony act against me. By, by virtue of your attack on me, you are committing a felony. A felony is a crime by which you can be in jail for more than a year. An assault is a physical, a, 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 a physical attack on someone else. Now, common law legal systems have separate definitions for assault and battery. Uh, battery refers to actual bodily contact. Assault refers to credible threat or attempt to cause battery. Uh, in Virginia, Virginia uses common law, but their assault statute actually does uh, cause harm to a body, an assault. You're not just scaring someone, you're actually impacting their body in some way, and it is a felony. You punch me, you hit me, you you use a billy club against me, whatever. It's, It's an assault or battery, and it is a felony. It is a crime. Now, 
what does all of this have to do with overplaying their hands? In, in the state of Virginia, the Democrats in the state of Virginia have proposed making it just a misdemeanor if you commit assault on a police officer. Yes, a, a, assault on a police officer. Um, 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 um uh, that 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 my friends, that is that is overplaying one's hand. Uh, that is that is uh, provoking a reaction in the opposite direction. Now, Virginia Democrats maybe think that they can do this because they have um, they have secured Northern Virginia for the Democratic Party. But I just suspect that there are a lot of people in Northern Virginia who they want their, you know, this is this, this is the thing, by the way. You know, I, I do pay attention to the polling and, and I pay attention to the trends. And what I find most remarkable in, in the polling these days is white suburban women tend to be more pro-law enforcement than white suburban men. White suburban women tend to be more pro-law enforcement than white suburban men. And that is an issue, I suspect, that is an issue that is going to in some way impact voters if the Democrats go too far in, in bashing the police. Why would white women like the police more than white men? Well, white men seem to think that they can handle themselves and white women want the police there to keep their kids safe. That, my friends, is the difference. White women are concerned about the safety of their children and themselves and their homes and out and about in society. White men think, I'm going to carry a gun and I'm going to protect myself. Now, you should conceal carry. This, by the way, is the perfect opportunity to tell you. This was not intentional. This is a heck of a transition. Let me stop and tell you about true precision. Speaking of concealed carry weapons, my beautiful work of art. I, I'm going to have to like for the live stream. Facebook may cancel me for showing my gun on on Facebook Live, but I've got a Glock 43X from True Precision, and it really is a work of art. Uh, um, one of the the owners of the business heard me say this on the radio yesterday, and, and he he said he he loved me say, "Y'all, I'm not kidding. This thing is a work of art. I may have to the next commercial break go find it and and show it on the camera. It is it's beautiful. I love this gun. Uh, I got to pick uh the barrel. I got to pick the slide. I got to pick the grip. Uh, they, they put in fancy sights for me. Uh, it, they do not sell Glocks at True Precision. What they do, though, is they sell individual pieces that you yourself can use to upgrade your Glock or your SIG or other gun. Uh, their website is true-precision.com. And here's the really cool thing. So you want a new slide for your gun. I may go on and get me one for my Glock 19. In fact, while I'm here, the website is true dash precision.com. I, I have a Glock 19. It was the very first handgun I ever bought. And they have a Glock 19, and uh, they've got the barrels, and then let's see. Uh, okay, so they got the Axiom slides for the Glock 43. They got slide plates. They got triggers. See, I got to upgrade my trigger now on my gun. Uh, yep, and look, ooh, look at that. They've got a ooh, that's that's ooh. They've got the non-threaded True Precision barrel for the Glock 19. That re it really is a work of art, and you can color code it. You can get it in black. You can get it in blue or copper. You can get it in gold. You can get it the the spectrum. That's the perfect one. I well, I'm not gonna say that. Um, 
Uh, man, you, I, I'm just telling you, what, what you get from True Precision will be the best upgrade you will get for your gun, whether it's the barrel, whether it's a slide, a trigger, you name it. Uh, here's what you do. You go to true-precision.com. And when you buy something, you can buy, I mean, for example, um, let's see, the Spectrum, the Spectrum one is kind of rainbowish, kind of kind of neat looking. Uh, or, or I like the Black Nitride one. It's, it's, um, it, it is backordered by about two weeks. Why? Because they're so popular and awesome. But you can add it to your cart. You can buy it from them. They will ship it to you. You can upgrade your gun with their stuff. And if you use Eric at checkout, E-R-I-C-K, you get 10% off. I'm telling you people, it is a work of art. You want to upgrade your gun, like your your, your stock gun. You, they've got barrels for MMP. They got it for SIG. They got it for Glock. You want this? I'm telling you, go to true-precision.com. Uh, and man, you can make your gun look unique for you and it, it, it'll be a work of art. Uh, I, and I put up a picture of my Glock 43, um, with the slide, uh, and it's, it's camo. It's man. I got to pick the pieces. I had so much fun, um, working with them on, on this Glock 43. Y'all can do that. Uh, but you go to true-precision.com and, they, I, like, I, I don't look. I, I'm, I'm giving them more time than I should. They're not. This is bad businessman of me. But I'm telling you, True Precision. They got great. They got great parts for your guns, and you will love them if you go check them out. And they're Georgia based, by the way. They're for those of you listening in Georgia. They're here. A uh, great way to support a hometown company. Now I got to move on. So on the gun stuff, yeah, concealed carry. Men tend to believe they can protect themselves more than women. And as a result, uh, women tend to like the police more than men. Uh, men, men, let's be honest, we want to speed a little more. We don't like the speed traps. Um, I, I have to tell you, I was coming home last night. Um, I was up in Atlanta. Uh, I, I find those of you who are on the, the camera will notice I have gotten my hair cut. And I went to dinner with uh, Chris Burns from Dynamic Money. Uh, we, we had stuff we needed to talk about. And I was on my way home and man, I was driving faster than I normally should. And and I didn't even realize that was a problem. Um, For some reason I was having cruise. I normally drive with my cruise control, but there was a, I can tell you what the problem was. It was the priest. Why is it that pre Florida people, those of you who live in Georgia, in fact, those of you who are listening down in the Adel and Valdosta area, y'all know particularly what I'm talking about because you have these people come across the state line. Or if you're in Brunswick, you you know it too. You see these people, the Floridians, they come across the Florida line and they're driving in the left lane 10 miles slower than everybody else. And everybody's going to go around them. I have no idea why. So last night I'm coming home and there's this Prius with a Florida tag. It's always a Florida tag. And they're in the left lane, and so I get into the middle lane, and they get into the middle lane, and 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 I'm finally, a, a, I've got that that stupid cruise control. Well, it's not really stupid; it can come in handy where the car in front of you is moving slower, and you got cruise control, so your car slows down automatically. And every time this car, it would speed up, and then it, you know how people drive these days where they're coming over a hill because they don't want to get a ticket. They floor it going up the hill, and then they hit the brakes and they go down the hill, make sure there's no cops, and they floor it, and then they slow. This car was doing that; it's driving me insane. And I finally just decided, you know what? I got to get this car. The, the driver, I don't know if they're drunk or what. They, they won't stay in the lane. They keep switching lanes. They're, they change their speeds. They're, they're clearly, it's a Prius too. And I find I'm doing 90 miles an hour. I've got a, this Yukon Denali. Um, and 
it, the thing rides smooth. I did not realize I was going that fast. So it's like, oh, I am going to get a ticket. I'm going to be a super speeder too. And that's going to ruin my chance to go to the beach because I'm going to have to use all the money I save for the beach to pay for my speeding ticket. And, and I slowed down. I did not. But that, that, that gets to the issue with men. We drive a little faster. We tend to own guns. We think we can take care of ourselves. And it's the women with kids in the suburbs who are really into police protection. And they do not like it when you do things like make it a misdemeanor to assault police officers when it's a felony if you yourself were assaulted. That's crazy. You will also, what you will do is you will drive away the police. You will you will not see police protection. Look at what's happening in Atlanta right now. Uh, personal and property crime is up 57% year over year in Atlanta in the last three weeks. From, from this time last year to now, the 57% increase these weeks compared to these weeks last year. Why? Because the police aren't showing up. They're not responding to calls. Uh, they're not doing it. Uh, and, and the reason that they're not doing it is because they don't want to be the next people indicted by the DA in, in Atlanta. Now, this is not having spillover effect into the suburbs. Alpharetta is in Fulton County, and the Fulton County DA impacts Alpharetta. But you don't see the police in Alpharetta doing this. It's just the police in Atlanta that are doing this. You don't see the police in, oh, what is it, um, South Fulton? I, I guess that's the name of the city now, South Fulton. You don't see them doing it there. It, it, it is the Atlanta police who have been targeted by the Fulton DA. He's in a runoff. He's using them to try to win his reelection, and the police in Atlanta are having none of it. And I'm telling you, that's going to have spillover effect in the suburbs in metro Atlanta because the crime that happens in Atlanta tends to spill over, not just in Fulton County and out the Alpharetta area and places like that. It'll spill over into Gwinnett. It'll spill over into Cobb. It'll spill over to Roswell and Sandy Springs and Dunwoody and, and Marietta. It'll have a cascading effect. And the suburban women who look like they are drifting away from the GOP will come back because they want to be safe and they want their kids to be safe. If the Democrats are not careful with this, they are handing Donald Trump re-election. It is a striking thing that Joe Biden can largely stay in his basement, do nothing, and be ahead in the polls. The moment the Democrats, though, turn on the police in that regard, man, they are, they're going to be in for a world of hurt. Right now... Right now, the president of the United States, to a degree, is hurting himself. And, and that's you can be mad at me for saying it, but that is the reality of the situation. Whether or not we want to admit it, that is the reality of the situation. I wish it weren't so. You may be able to hear my dog going nuts at the very thought of it in the background. But... But this is all this is all manageable and it is fixable and it is July 1st. The president has time. What the Democrats don't have, though, is time to get their their mob away from wanting to wipe out the police forces of this nation. The, the Every day that the, the Democrats don't try to steer in a different direction is the day the mob begins to believe the Democrats really agree with them. And again, I've heard from plenty of Democrats out there that they don't actually want to defund the police. They don't actually want to stop law enforcement in this country. But you never know that from the angry mob, and the angry mob is increasingly taking control of the Democratic Party. That's going to end badly for the Democrats, people. It is going to end badly for them if they don't figure out a way around it. And they can't figure out a way around it because they've been hijacked by the mob. And when Donald Trump goes away now or four years from now, there's going to be a reckoning in that party. 
It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. Going to go to the phones to Shirley in Woodstock. Welcome. How are you? I'm doing fine. I was at a party this weekend. Yes, socially distanced with a friend (laughs) that went with me to the resurgent gathering last summer. And we were telling everybody what what we heard and just, you know, with the information we gathered, I'm hoping you'll have one next summer. Okay, so I'm hoping I'll have one next summer. And I, you know, I'm glad we decided not to do one this year. And it was kind of interesting because the president wanted to come. Uh, and after we did the last one, the vice president went back to D.C., told the president about it, and the president called and said uh, if I did another one, he wanted to come, uh, and we were going to do one. And then we started working with the White House team on scheduling, and you got both con- – I mean, this was all pre-pandemic, but you had both You had both conventions. Then there were a bunch of other, other big things, and so we would have to try to squeeze it in the middle, which would make it hard for the president. It would make it hard for us. It would make it hard for the, the sponsors. And we just decided there was no conceivable way we could really do it logistically when we wanted to do it. And then the pandemic hit, and I'm so glad we didn't have, like, hotel contracts and stuff. Um, so we definitely want to do it next year, but obviously we got to keep the virus in mind. But my thinking, honestly, Shirley, is that uh, whether the president wins or loses, he's term limited. And the Republicans will begin to start having conversations about the future and getting all of the potential 2024 people on stage and yes. to let them start shaping their vision, that's kind of what I, I would love to have Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton and Tim Scott and Nikki Haley and Mike Pence and the rest of them come next year and start talking about what they want the future of the party to look like. Bring also back the governor of Tennessee. That gentleman was fabulous. So I've been trying to actually get Bill Lee on on this show uh, to talk to me a little bit about what's going on in Tennessee. We've got now got a new affiliate that's been spills over into Tennessee. And yes, you're right. Uh, that guy, man, his life story. Uh, and, and look, I, I'll let you go there, Shirley. But thank you. I, I definitely want to do this. Bill Lee, one of the most incredible underrated uh, political forces in America right now. Uh, the governor of Tennessee lost his wife, nearly lost his daughter to suicide. Uh, rebuilt his life, uh, had his business nearly go under because he was taking care of his family and left the business in the care of others who nearly destroyed it. Uh, had to rebuild his family, rebuild his life, rebuild his business, and got into politics a year ago, two years ago, was disgusted with what was happening in Tennessee and ran and won. And he is just, he's a good businessman, he's a good Christian, he's a good family man, and he's been a, a, just a terrific governor of Tennessee. Uh, I really am a fan of the guy. And man, just our conversational. So this is what, I, you know, I used to when I did the Red State Gathering, I'd let the politicians come and they'd stand on stage and they'd speak for 20 minutes and then they'd take questions for about 10 minutes and, and they'd walk off. And I decided I actually want to sit down with these people and have a conversation and let them talk but engage with them on these topics and it, I did that with Bill Lee, and man, it was incredible. Uh, he is such a such a warm person. Uh, really liked him, but I, I really do. I want to do this conference next year, and I want to get Josh Hawley, and I want to get Tim Scott, and I want to get Tom Cotton, and Marco Rubio, and Nikki Haley, and Mike Pence, and Doug Ducey, 
and Ron DeSantis and Brian Kemp and, and David Perdue and whoever else wants to come and say, okay, uh, let's assume the president gets reelected. He's term limited. And so what should the course of the future of the Republican Party be? And start having those conversations. Now, a buddy of mine is texting me angrily that that I can't believe you would start 2024 next year. Well, it's going to start anyway. Um, I would like it to start with me having these conversations. Actually, I want to reach. I've been trying to get Josh Hawley to come on the show to talk about his uh, internet regulatory reform that he wants to do, which I I am more and more leaning in his direction on some of this stuff, and am interested to have a conversation with him on that. And and I'm going to have to continue to, to try to get him on here. But there are conversations to be had that Republicans aren't having right now in public policy. And they're not having them because they're focused on 2020. But the Republican Party is increasingly a party that doesn't stand for anything other than President Trump's reelection. And the party for long-term viability is going to have to have ideas. And what are those ideas? And I would like to have a part in that conversation. In fact, I've got a book publisher who's wanting me to write another, you know, I, so we go to Hilton Head for family vacation. We didn't go last year. And every year that I've gone, I've had a book project I've worked on. And it was just kind of funny. This book publisher reached out to me and uh, wants me to start considering writing a book on the future of the Republican party and what those ideas are. And I don't know that the Republican party has ideas. I'll, I'll tell you one idea that's out there right now. The mayor of Atlanta Keisha Lance Bottoms, a would-be vice presidential contender for Joe Biden, has signed on to a letter calling for a guaranteed income. Not a universal basic income, but she wants a guaranteed income for the residents of Atlanta. Uh, Makes you wonder who would pay for it. We'll discuss when we come back. Hello. Uh, So uh, let let me, if you're just tuning in here, well, first of all, the phone number, let let me do basic housekeeping for the program. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Mayors of 11 U.S. cities want to uh, establish guaranteed income. These are the mayors of Stockton, California, Jackson, Mississippi, St. Paul, Minnesota, Newark, New Jersey, Compton, California, uh, Los Angeles, California, Shreveport, Louisiana, Oakland, California, Columbia, South Carolina, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and Tacoma, Washington. Let me read you the letter that they have signed. In 1967, against a backdrop of massive civil unrest, Dr. Martin Luther King wrote, where do we go from here, chaos or community, and called for the immediate abolition of poverty. In the richest nation of the world, King saw no justification for the evil of rampant poverty and chastised the government's efforts against the ill as piecemeal and pygmy. Housing efforts were subject to the whims of the legislature. Education reforms were sluggish and family assistance programs were neglected. All failed to reach the most profound needs of the poor. King's economic dream was the most direct, a guaranteed income for all Americans. This week, more than 50 years later and against a similar backdrop of racial and economic unrest, we mayors are bringing that dream to life. Economic insecurity isn't new and poverty itself is violent. We need a policy solution That is as bold as it is innovative and as simple as it is ambitious. We must fight every day for a more just economy because what happens to one of us happens indirectly to all of us. And we are in this fight together. 
That's why as mayors of 11 American cities with a collective population of 7 million people, we're launching Mayors for Guaranteed Income. The coalition will invest in additional guaranteed income pilots and advocate for state and federal cash-based policies. As leaders of our respective cities, we see firsthand how poverty and economic insecurity afflict our neighborhoods and families. Nearly 40% of Americans cannot afford a $400 emergency, and rising income inequality is compounded by a growing racial wealth gap. The median net worth of white households is 10 times that of black households and about eight times that of Latinx households. And the wealthiest 0.1% in America own the same amount as the wealth of the bottom 90%. For women, the stats paint an even bleaker image. Women, particularly women of color, are the most likely to live in poverty and work in low-paying jobs and are far more likely to lack access to sick leave and health care benefits. Black women are paid 62 cents for every dollar that a white male earns, and Latinx women make even less than 54 cents for every dollar a white male earns. Now it's the same Americans already working harder and harder, yet being left further and further behind who bear the brunt of COVID-19. According to the COVID racial data tracker, black people make up 13% of the population, but 23% of deaths from the virus. On and on it goes. Now let me skip down. A guaranteed income is a monthly cash payment given directly to individuals. It is unconditional with no strings attached and no work requirements. A guaranteed income is meant to supplement rather than replace the existing social safety net and can be a tool for racial and gender equity. Direct unconditional cash gives people the freedom to spend money on their most immediate needs, be it food for their household, repairing a car to get to work, medicine to treat a loved one, or simply rent. One city has already put the idea into action. In 2019, Stockton, California launched the nation's first mayor-led guaranteed income demonstration with the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, or SEED, giving 125 randomly selected recipients $500 a month for 24 months. The cash is unconditional, with no strings attached and no work requirements. Early data from the program, early data from the program, proves what we've intuitively known to be true that people are working, but the economy isn't. And because SEED's recipients are people like you and us, they're spending the money like you and we would on basic needs like food, transportation, utilities, and rent. Following in SEED's footsteps, Mayor Baraka of Newark, New Jersey, launched a task force and released a report calling for a pilot and a federal guaranteed income policy. Mayor Lumumba of Jackson, Mississippi, is supportive of the Magnolia Mothers Trust, a non-government program that gives $1,000 a month to black mothers living in extreme poverty. Mayor Carter of St. Paul, Minnesota, issued a one-time cash infusion of $1,000 to about 1,250 families with children in response to COVID-19. Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles, Angelino campaign, provided prepaid debit cards of $700 to $1,500 to residents whose total household income fell below the poverty line before COVID-19. And Mayor Brown of Compton, California, announced a partnership with a nonprofit, Give Directly, which gives cash directly to people living in poverty to distribute $1,000 to families that receive food stamp benefits. This is not the, um, what is it, the um, guaranteed uh, minimum income program that some European countries tried. Uh, you know, so Finland, for example, I believe, yeah, it was Finland. Finland decided that um, that Finland was going to do a universal basic income 
where people could uh, th- they could have a guaranteed salary by the Finnish government, uh, and they would just get a paycheck. And it turns out uh, that the people who were getting that that universal basic income were learning to live within the income and not actually go to work. And I I I gotta tell you, um, I gotta tell you, they abandoned the program because it wasn't working. It wasn't elevating people out of poverty, and it was making people lazy. Now this is not that. This is not guaranteeing a salary to people, just a, a guaranteeing um, um, a, 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 a different salary so they don't have to work. What this is, is is they focus people who are in poverty and they give them cash to help them make ends meet. But there are no strings attached and they can use the money for whatever they want. And I can tell you what's going to happen. There will be a lot of people for whom a program like this does a lot of good. I mean, y'all, we, we do need to face it. There are people who live in extreme poverty, sometimes for their own bad decision-making and sometimes through no fault of their own. And my problem, honestly, and, and this makes me a cold-hearted SOB, I guess, but back in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, up until the war on poverty declared by Lyndon Johnson, we as a nation would talk about the deserving poor. And the deserving poor were the people who, through no fault of their own, were poor. They were from parts of the country that were impoverished to begin with. They didn't have way out ways out of that poverty. They didn't have access to education in some cases or running water in some cases. There are still parts of the country where people struggle to have access to running water. And and, uh, unless you live in in extremely rural, poor areas, you don't see that. Uh, Appalachia is one of those examples. And I got to tell you, there are people who could use a program like this. But I'm opposed to the program. And the reason I'm opposed to the program is because human nature shows that there will be people who, when given the cash handout, become comfortable with the cash handout. And there will be people who use that money unwisely. And if we can't distinguish between the people who really need it and the people who just continually screw up their life, then we have a problem. We are a nation right now that wants to deprive hardworking Americans of access to pain medication because some people get addicted to it and some doctors overprescribe it. And so everyone's life is made more miserable. We are a nation where you cannot go buy over-the-counter pseudoephedrine medicine that actually does stop your, your congestion. You got to buy the crap phenylephedrine, which is nonsensical nonsense that doesn't actually work. Because some people decided that they could go buy Sudafed at the grocery store and make meth with it. And so Diane Feinstein and the members of Congress got together and made all of our lives more difficult because of those irresponsible people. And there are going to be a lot of irresponsible people who are using their money to buy things they shouldn't and do things in their life they shouldn't. And guess what? Their life is going to be even a bigger wreck and we're going to have to bail them out. And when you don't, you're going to be a bad person. You're going to be a racist. You're going to be a hater. Why don't why 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 don't we do this? Why, why instead of giving people a guaranteed income, instead of giving people cash handouts, 
why don't we give them a helping hand up? Now, now they'll say that this cash gives them a helping hand up. And, and you know, there are people who need rent assistance who are struggling to do better. And there are people who get into cycles of poverty. I, 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 I want to try to exercise a level of compassion here. I know, I know. There are people who struggle mightily. There was a time, in, in, and I'm going to use my personal example here. There was a time in my life when my wife and I got married where I was actually on paper doing well. I mean, well, c- compared to people who were living in extreme poverty, making 42000 a year out of law school. And my wife had a job she was making. We were combined making about 60000 a year gross. We didn't have kids yet. And then my wife, I started having to pay back all my student loans. And that was about $1,500 a month. We wound up buying a house. Our house actually wasn't bad. Our house was like $500 a month, the mortgage. And our student loans were like twelve dollars to $1,500 a month. I had a, a, a car that literally had parts of it uh, held together with duct tape. Me as a lawyer. Um, the cheapest suits I could possibly find to be able to go to court. And then my wife had to have a mastectomy. And we had insurance, but we had to pay for a good portion of this stuff out of pocket. So we had medical bills piled up. We, we, we didn't have a savings account. We couldn't save. We couldn't save money. It was actually cheaper for us to buy our house. It was actually a financially wise decision for, to, for us to buy our house because the rent we were paying was astronomical where we had been. And, and uh, looking at cheaper places, we could actually, we were better off buying our house. But the student loans were killing us. The medical bills were killing us. I mean, it, it was financial hell for us, and we were doing better than, than really poor people. And, and the air conditioner went out. We had to get a line of credit on the house to be able to put in a new air conditioner. And the, this cycle of going into debt with emergencies, you know, this is why I, I talk about using Dynamic Money. They're one of our sponsors. Um, dynamic Money really, I mean, I, I'm now we've been married for 20 years. I'm doing well, uh, but still. We go through months where I'm having to put stuff on a credit card and they're like, no, let, let's, let's show you how you can refinance and build up. You can build up some uh, income. You can build up income reserves. You can build up emergency fund. Working with dynamic money has been great uh, for that. And I have the ability to do that. And there are a lot of poor people out there who don't. And, and I, I, I recount my existence of first when I get married to say that there are people in their forties and fifties who are in worse situations than that, who are making $30,000 a year or less. And if their window unit air conditioner goes out, they don't have the money to fix that. They got to live in the heat or they got to put it on a credit card. And then the credit card bill is 20,000 or 20% interest. And they just have this circle of debt that keeps them in poverty, that there's no way out. And so I'm mindful that there are people who need a leg up in society, that they need a helping hand to get them out of poverty. But can, can I just, can, can I, I, I preach at you for just a moment? Our churches should be willing to help. Our churches should be willing to take care of people. You know, I, I honest to goodness think one of the greatest recruitment tools a church could have is to have a generous spirit. When word gets out that your church is helping your church members, that, that gets out and other people come to the church and you share the gospel with them. 
And maybe they're just there to take advantage of the wealth of the church, but maybe they get their soul fed as well. But we've abandoned, we have abandoned helping the poor to the government and the government does it badly. We had this war on poverty from Lyndon Johnson and all it's done is, is destroyed families and kept people poor. And now they want to do a guaranteed income. You know what the guaranteed income is going to do? It's going to keep people poor. Because a lot of people, some people will use it and they will elevate themselves out of poverty. But a lot of people will say, hey, I'm getting a thousand bucks from the government in addition to the rest of the stuff that I'm getting. I, I think I can make do. And they don't have the education, the training, or the access to groups like Dynamic Money to be able to help elevate themselves out of poverty and teach them good financial skills. And we just keep throwing money at the problem. At some point, you got to stop throwing money at the problem. And that Democratic mayors are now coming out saying, hey, let's just throw money at the problem. That sounds really good on paper. And I'm sure there are a bunch of, of, of white liberals who will decide that this is grand and glorious because they can just throw money at the problem and never have to actually deal with the root of the problem, which is what will happen. And the roots will just keep getting more and more entangled. And you're going to have more and more problems long term. And the Democratic mayors will eventually say, hey, we need to throw even more money at the problem in different ways now, as opposed to actually dealing with underlying problems and being willing to recognize there are some people who have screwed up their lives and will keep screwing up their lives, knowing that you're going to bail them out and you are creating moral hazards in society by bailing out people who really don't deserve to be bailed out, but because you can't distinguish anymore in society between those who deserve to be helped and those who don't, you just help everybody and it just creates a feedback loop of mess in society. And that's just the reality of it. Uh, this is a terrible idea and the mayor of Atlanta is backing it. All right. Well, Savannah has decided to require face masks. Uh, lots of face masks, and uh, Miami, I think, is now requiring them. Some places are even requiring them. Listen, you know, I, I, I have been, I have had my tirade of wear your face mask, or wear, wear your masks when you go in public. But there is some ridiculousness to the idea that if you're out in public by yourself, you should wear a mask, or if you're sitting on the beach and you're socially distanced from other people and the wind is blowing, you should wear a mask. I don't think you need to wear a mask in those places. I don't think if, if you go to a big open, like I, I go to a great big open gym and I am the only person there and I'm not going to wear a mask. The, the trainer and I are not standing next to each other and I'm, I'm working out and I'm, I'm not going to wear a mask. And when people come in, uh, he's got the whole place marked off. So people are socially distanced. Even when they're there, you got to reserve the time that you're coming so they can make sure that, and that I think that is great. I think it's great. When you go to the crowded grocery store, wear, wear a mask. But I got to tell you, um, I, I understand some people's skepticism of masks when the media turns a blind eye to it. Because here's the, here's the thing, though. This, this is the thing that frustrates me. Um, the media is biased and out to get you. But that doesn't make everything wrong. Doesn't make it all bad. Um. The media has double standards and they're hypocrites. But, you know, if they were to report that the president of the United States wins re-election, you'll believe them. Uh, if, if they report that it's raining and you look out the window and it's raining, uh, you'll believe them when they report there's a rampant virus spreading throughout society and you can see the numbers for yourself. Believe them. When they say uh, you should wear a mask, but the protesters don't, you can realize that there's partisan bias. You, you are capable of distinguishing 
Um, but man, I, I get it. Y'all, I do get it. I heard from a lot of people saying, what, why, why don't you take on the media? Yes. Take on the media. I I'm happy to take on the media, but wear your mask when you're in a group. Now let's see. Um, the phone number here is eight, seven, seven, nine, seven, three, seven, four, two, five. I'm going to go to Sadie. You're going to be next. Welcome. Uh, Hey, Eric, I want to come in on the, uh, Free money that you was talking about that yes. uh, they're wanting to give. Well, I'm going to tell you about my brother. Uh, he gets to live in a government apartment for near nothing. He gets food stamps. He gets a free government phone, free gas one time a year. And he said he had nothing to complain about, didn't want a job. This is what I'm talking about. We, we have incentivized yeah. people, you know, and, and so here's the thing. Uh, prior to the pandemic, we had the lowest unemployment rate in the country. Only about 3.4% of the country wasn't working. And most of those people were the people who were incapable of working. But there were some of those people who could have gone out and worked, but they didn't need to work. They didn't even they didn't need to wait a table. They didn't need to scrub a toilet, nothing, because they were getting enough government income. There was no point. And we have incentivized a lot of people to do that. Yeah. He gets two checks a month. And, and I'm going to hang up, but I'm going to tell you this. When we growed up, we didn't ask our parents for nothing. We either worked for it or we didn't get it. We knew they didn't have it, and there wasn't nobody to give it to us. And, you know, I think that was a good generation, Eric. Yeah, you don't said, depend on the government to bail you out every time you can't get right. what you want. I, look, I, I appreciate you calling, and, and thank you for that. And you're, you're right. Uh, and, you know, I, I got to tell you again, this is we, – we've become so dependent on the government, and, and the government hates competition. And so the government has, has uh, made it more punitive for churches. Help, but I, I'm, people worry about the church and the country and the spread of the – the more actual uh, Orthodox Bible-believing churches engage in their local community – and they're feeding stomachs and helping helping members of the church. And like my church is very generous with members, and, and nobody brags about it. And it, it, there there are a lot of people who who pridefully don't want help. They they don't want to acknowledge that they may need it. And it's it's good to I hear more and more stories coming out of my church of people who they um they don't want to admit that they need help, but someone in the church finds out they do, and the church steps in and helps them whether they want it or not. And, and frankly, you need more churches doing stuff like that in the community and, and getting people less dependent on government, more back into the church and dependent on the church because you're going to get your soul fed too. The government never feeds souls, and that's part of the problem we're dealing with as a country. Hello, America. It is Eric Erickson here. How are you? Yeah, the phone number. If you want to be part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Bottom of the hour, Laurel Bristow is going to join me. She is an expert epidemiological researcher. I wanted to talk to her about the virus, uh, the advances made, the potential medical treatments, um, and, and what's actually going on out there, and, and get her take on on wearing masks and whatnot. She works at Emory University, has uh, developed a big following. My wife is one of her followers on Instagram, uh, just covering day-to-day the research that comes out about, the, about COVID-19 and the potential progress or lack thereof made on the virus. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on the data on the virus right now. Uh, in particular, 
Let me give you the audit trail in Georgia. Things are not looking good in the state of Georgia. Uh, hospitalizations continue to go up in the state of Georgia, uh, and the daily counts uh, continue to go up. We have hit now a 2,000-count uh, day. Uh, we've got uh, the, the, the moving averages are bad. Uh, everything is above uh, 1,000 pretty consistently. Uh, the number of cases that are confirmed, if you go on the state website, uh, you can uh, text the word data to 33777. I'll send you a link to the state website. Uh, keep in mind that uh, the numbers are going up. So, for example, if you look at June uh, 28th and 29th, you got like 240 cases, 230 cases, or um, as of June 30th, 35 cases. Uh, when those cases are finally tested and put back in, you see this big spike and, and the big spike has come and uh, the number doesn't look good for Georgia. Uh, the reproduction rate of the virus, if you go to rt.live, which is the website, uh, it's 1.15 now. It had been as high as 1.37 uh, and it had gotten down to uh, 0.78 in Georgia. And then when the state opened back up and, and you started having the protests and the like, uh, the numbers started going back up again. We're now at 1.15. The number of daily positive tests is not good. Um, thus far, for example, let me the, the high that we had had been April 20th. Uh, and now actually it looks like the high is June 28th. 2,225 uh, cases, 2,207 on June 29th, and 1,874. Now, those will be, those are reported that day, so some of those will be put back and readjusted. Uh, on the good news, frankly, uh, the good news is that we have, uh, deaths have declined in Georgia. We're not seeing an uptick in, in uh, Georgia deaths. That means that uh, younger people, it appears, are getting the virus more than older people. The problem, though, is this. We can't get society fully opened unless we contain the virus. And because of a, an understandable and healthy distrust of experts and the media and politicians, a lot of people have it in their head that, that any advice they're given that doesn't conform to their pre-existing uh, biases is wrong. And so we're not able to move beyond the virus. The, the problem is also hurt by a media that is increasingly so partisan. The media has decided to take pot shots uh, at the left. The media has decided to, or I'm sorry, at the right, the, the media has decided to ridicule red states. Oh, it's the red states that are the problem. The red states, the red states. Well, no, actually, uh, New York, New Jersey, and California continue to lead the nation. You'd never know that from the media coverage. And when you see that on a daily basis, uh, what you what you tend to get is a healthy skepticism that the media is telling you the truth. It is understandable given that situation, but the reality is we do have problems. Thankfully, though, we are not exceeding hospital capacity in Georgia or ICU capacity or anything like that. Here's the vice president on, on the testing and, and the rest of it. With regard to testing, with regard to personal protective equipment, with regard to ventilators, with regard to therapeutic medicines, we are in a strong position all across the affected areas of the country to meet this moment. But in consultation with the states, 
we're we're going to make sure that they have the reinforcements in healthcare workers. And one more, because of the dedication of our healthcare workers, because of uh, our response and the response of the American people. Um, uh, we are grateful that today uh, fatalities are at the lowest level since uh, the end of March. Um, we continue to be vigilant as we see rising cases. Uh, we understand that that could, that could change, but uh, again, to see the, uh, uh, the precipitous decline in fatalities uh, is a tribute to uh, the healthcare workers in this country and uh, to the cooperation and the compassion of the American people. Now, there's there's something I, I need to add here. Um, we were told repeatedly that we needed to shelter in place to flatten the curve, and, and we did flatten the curve. And what was flattening the curve? The, the curve was this big spike in hospitalizations that was overwhelming our capacity. I just pulled up. If you text the word data to 33777, uh, you will see the um, you'll you'll see the IHME modeling, and one of the things the IHME modeling shows is is hospital resource usage. In fact, if you go, they've completely changed everything now, and it, it's one of the unfortunate, frustrating things here is is how they've changed the data. They finally added a compare tab, but it's hard to keep up. But if you text data to three three seven seven seven. And uh, you you see the IHME modeling, and you click on hospital resources used. What you see is that Georgia has eight thousand three hundred twenty three beds in hospitals and five hundred ninety beds in um, in the ICU. And where we are right now is Georgia has uh, needs three hundred thirty nine ICU beds. Well, we've got five hundred ninety ICU beds in the state, so we're fine there. And Georgia needs 8,000 or Georgia uh, needs 1,258 hospital beds, which we've got because we've got 8,323 total beds in the state of Georgia. So the governor's plan to flatten the curve to, to stop hospitals from being overwhelmed actually did work. We actually did flatten the curve enough. So that people can get out of their house. Now, the problem is, what do we do as the virus continues to spread? Um, because right now it does seem to be spreading in younger communities. The median age in Florida, I've mentioned before, went from 65 to 32. So it's younger people who are getting it. Uh, finally, the Los Angeles Times is acknowledging that it has begun spreading among protesters. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing this. Uh, that protesters have spread the virus. And that, my friends, kind of makes a big deal uh, and, and notes that the, the media has largely not been honest with us. The media has not really, um, the media has not covered this fairly. The media has not uh, done a good job, and that is why they're skeptical. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, one of my frustrations in dealing with friends of mine who are in the media is I don't under I don't think they appreciate how contemptuously most Americans view them these days. And I'm not talking about conservatives. I'm talking about Americans in general. And so when the media, for example, goes after uh, protesters who wanted to reopen the country and attacks them, but then uh, the same media 
gives a pass to protesters and pride marchers and the and the like now uh, that shows that there is a level of antagonism in the media and a lot of people choose not to believe anything they hear from the media because of that and I think that's understandable but I would say that we should listen to people like the vice president or to Dr. Fauci or, or to others who they're fallible people they've certainly made mistakes but they're they're actually trying to do right. They're trying to do well. And the vice president of the United States is one of those people out there saying we got to wear masks, but also out there pointing out that we actually, on our testing capacity, in our PPE, in our ventilator capacity and the like, we're, we're doing okay. Uh, let me play you this clip by Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci, do these numbers show that the country is still moving, quote, in the right direction and that the coronavirus pandemic is under control? Well, I think the numbers speak for themselves. Although we do have a number of parts of the country that are doing well, I'm very concerned about what's going on right now, particularly in the four states that are accounting for about 50% of the new infections, but the other vulnerable states. So I'd have to say the numbers speak for themselves. I'm very concerned and I'm not satisfied with what's going on because we're going in the wrong direction. If you look at the curves of the new cases, so we've really okay. got to do something about that, and we need to do it quickly. Short answer so, to the question is that clearly we are not in total control right now. And we need to be. Um, I don't know. There, there's, there's something sad about the United States not getting a grip on the virus when other countries have. The, uh, the Czech Republic is reopening. They actually had a giant beer celebration in Prague, a giant beer bash in downtown Prague to celebrate the company reopening, uh, the company, the, the country reopening because they, they've beaten the virus. Uh, everybody's been wearing masks and, and they've been able to, to stamp out the virus through contact tracing and through mask wearing in public. Slovenia uh, has reopened. Uh, restaurants are reopened, cafes are reopened, bars are reopened, schools have reopened. Kids actually went back to school and finished out the school year because they made everybody wear a mask, except the kids in school didn't have to wear a mask. Uh, the teachers wore masks, and uh, people in businesses wore, wore masks, and they were able to go back to work. Taiwan and Singapore have started going back to work uh, because people are wearing masks, and, and they feel better about it. The virus isn't really spreading. And, and here in this country, we've got this divide on civil liberties and the like, and you can't tell me what to do. And it, it just seems like people are just angry for the sake of being angry. They don't want to do what they need to do to, to stamp out the virus. And I think there are people in denial about it still. There is hope on the horizon, thankfully. The United States, it announced today, has largely bought up the entire world supply of remdesivir, the uh, Gilead science drug that looks to have positive benefit against COVID-19. There is continued progress on the horizon with the virus, uh, with a vaccine treatment. There are other drugs in the works as well. There are improved antibody tests coming out as well. Uh, certainly the mortality for the, the the fatality rate for the virus is less. Uh, it's 1%, not 3 to 4%. Still higher than the flu. This is still worse than the flu. But there is good news out there. But the, the bad news is there are a lot of people who are still in denial about the virus and not doing the things that they probably should be doing. Uh, to deal with the virus. And that is unfortunate. And I I still continue to think, and this is kind of one of my frustrations here. 
if the economy is allowed to rebound, it helps the president. And there are a lot of the president's supporters who are most vocally against wearing masks. We can see from these other countries that they're wearing masks helps. And you would think that the president's supporters would be the first in line to wear masks to get back to work, to get back to their offices, to get the virus wound down so they get the economy going to help the president. It, it, it's almost like the president's supporters don't want the president to win re-election and then want to blame, blame it on the virus. I went to my office yesterday. Uh, I, I normally do my show uh, from Macon. My office is in Atlanta. I went into the office. There were signs everywhere. Wear your mask. Wear your mask. Uh, and And you're not allowed in the office anymore without a mask on. Uh, and things are slowly reopening with the businesses that are making people wear masks. But man, I, I just, I, I, I don't understand what's in the water right now. I, and you know, listen, I, I, I know I come across as, in fact, I've gotten a lot of angry emails from people saying I'm being very belittling and I don't really mean to be in most cases. So, okay. Some of them I do, but I just, I, I, I don't understand the rationale of the people who are in denial about the masks. That somehow it's it 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 impacts your liberty to tell you to wear a mask. When I just think if you want to be a good neighbor right now and want to get the economy going again, and you did that, uh, you don't have to believe the science, you don't have to believe the researchers, you don't have to believe the media. You, you just believe your eyes, looking at these countries that are reopening, and they're reopening because people have worn, gotten to worn, wear masks everywhere. And it's helped them. And and I would personally like to not see Joe Biden get elected. So I would personally like to see an economic rebound. So I'd personally like to see people wearing masks out in public when they're in crowds so that we can get a move on with getting people back out there and get the economy reopened again. But uh, maybe a lot of people just actually do want to see the president lose so they're not wearing masks. Well, thankfully, a judge has allowed uh, Garrett Roth, the police officer who's accused of of killing, uh, of murdering uh, Rayshard Brooks, has allowed him out of jail on on bail. Thankfully, um, gosh, I feel bad for that guy. I do, y'all. Um, the Rayshard Brooks situation in Atlanta, this is the guy who uh, was passed out in the drive-thru at the Wendy's in Atlanta and uh, was fine for 30, 40 minutes until the police decided to arrest him and then all hell broke loose. And a minute later, he was shot and killed after having taken pushed the, the officers down, gave one of them concussion, took the taser of the other, uh, tried to turn and fire it at the police officer who, who shot and killed him. And the DA is in a, a re-election battle in a runoff and decided to indict the police officer for murder uh, solely to try to gin up support for his re-election. I, I have no doubt he'll either lose the case or drop the case after he secured his re-election. And this police officer is is in limbo until then, and I feel so bad for him. I, I, I wish there was something we could do for him. I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a GoFundMe or something to contribute to, but... This guy, he needs support. All he did was he he followed the book. A tragedy resulted, but he followed the book. And that's just that, that I feel bad for him, but I'm glad he's, he's out of jail right now. Savannah, uh, so I'm going to Hilton Head this weekend uh, to take a little bit of a break. And if I go over to Savannah now, they have put in a mask mandate. You are required to wear masks in public now. 
in Savannah. Uh, the governor says he's not going to impose it on the state, but Savannah certainly is imposing it. And I, I suspect we're about to see other cities in the state step up and do it as well. Uh, and, and, you know, this is consistent with the governor. First, I, I don't know why people want to continue to put the governor in this light of, of he didn't do X, Y, and Z and should have, as opposed to individual responsibility or letting local communities decide that the local community of Savannah has decided this is in their best interest. They're going to do it. We're going to go to Hilton Head and Hilton Head has decided uh, if you wear masks uh, or th- that masks will be required in Hilton Head. And I, I don't have a problem with it. We got masks. We'll take them. You know, I've mentioned this before. So I've got a buddy of mine who works with a company. The company is is based here in the U.S. They make N95 masks and they sell them at, at high quantities. They don't, don't sell them to individuals. Uh, they sell them to companies and to governments. And they've been doing gangbusters selling masks to foreign governments. Uh, they've done a huge 50 million mask deal uh, in Central America. They're doing another one in Europe. And they can't get them sold in the United States to corporations or, or to the government uh, because they're not 3M. Uh, they, they've made them themselves. Uh, they can make them in high quantity, but they're not 3M making the mask themselves with the 3M stamp on them. And so governments in this country and corporations are are skeptical of picking them up because they want the 3M brand. And that, that 3M is backlogged. 3M can't make enough. 3M is the gold standard, but listen, when you got an N95 mask, an N95 mask means certain things, and this company makes N95 masks. Uh, and it's just, it, it's crazy to me that uh, we've got government and, and corporate bureaucracy in this country where they want employees and everybody to wear masks, and they won't buy from an American company that manufactures N95 masks because they're not 3M, which is backlogged. We still have bureaucratic backlogs in the country that we need to deal with. Uh, and, uh, man, uh, it, it really is something uh, to, to see private companies in this country stepping up in ways the government's not doing to try to solve the problem. Uh, and I think we should applaud local governments who are trying to solve the problem. You know, so Chris Cuomo went through this bizarre t- tirade last night that you don't need God. Uh, you just need yourselves to solve this problem. No, actually, uh, we would be better off if we all had a little more God in our life. That's one of the problems we have in this country right now is, is the secular religion coming out. That's why if you, if you weren't here earlier, I was uh, reading this letter. It's an environmental activist who's been involved in environmental politics for years who's finally had enough of the politics of the left when it comes to environmentalism, trying to, to uh, the apocalyptic uh, view of, of rich white people on the left who the whole world is going to end and we need universal basic income and uh, universal socialized medicine and high taxes on the rich and wealth distribution and an end to capitalism to save us. It doesn't matter what the problem is. That's what the left wants, uh, which is, I mean, to be expected. Um, but man, it's it really is amazing how they, they trot up the same ideas every time. Um, and now you got Governor Kemp out there Today, I'm seeing this in the AJC right now, that that college football may be in jeopardy if y'all don't wear masks. There's another incentive. When we come back, though, let's talk to a real expert about all of this stuff, shall we? An actual factual expert in epidemiology when we come back. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. Listen, you people are tired of me telling you you need to wear masks. 
uh, and you're an idiot for not wearing a mask. And, and, and I realize I should not call my own audience idiots for, for, for I, the conspiracy theorists out there driving me crazy. So my wife is a huge fan of my next guest, uh, wants to go ride motorcycles with her. Uh, and she is an epidemiological researcher uh, at uh, Emory University. She is an epidemiologist. She has been to one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth, Zanzibar, which makes me really jealous. Uh, and... She actually knows what she's talking about. I just pretend to, but she actually does. Uh, joining me is Laurel Brista. Laurel, thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. Of course. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, and my, and my wife, she wanted to be in here, but I realized I don't have a headphone jack for her, so she can't listen. But she says she she really wants to ride motorcycles with you. She sews, she rides motorcycles. She's awesome, and she thinks you are. <laughs> I, I would love that. I would love to go ride motorcycles with her. Well, I will I will let her know for sure. Okay, so I, I, I tell my audience all the time, I, I try to bring them the latest data, and I realize, particularly among conservatives, there's a lot of skepticism of the news and the like, but you've got all of these politicians want people to wear masks. Uh, you've got Slovenia, Taiwan, Singapore, Japan, South Korea, and now the Czech Republic, which had a big beer bash yesterday, having had everyone wear masks. Their countries are going back to business because they've worn masks. Um, can you, as, a, as an epidemiologist talk about the the necessity of wearing masks yeah absolutely so first i understand that it's incredibly confusing in a pandemic everyone's getting the same information at the same time and so you're making um policies based on what is available to you so they change and it can be really hard to keep up with that the reason that we want people to wear masks and the reason that this virus is um, so much more difficult to contain than something like, say, the flu, is that we have found that people are the most contagious right before they have symptoms. So unlike the flu or other viruses, you, where you're the most contagious uh, when you have the most symptoms, uh, if you have a lot of symptoms, you're more likely to be self-isolating, to be staying home and staying away from people because you feel terrible and you know you're sick. When you don't know you're sick, but you're still spreading the virus, you could be out and about in the community, you know, you're going to the grocery store, the post office, kind of high populated areas, and unknowingly are spreading your infection to other people. So the reason that we want people to wear masks is basically so there is a barrier between your infection and other people. The idea is that a mask will deflect the droplets coming out of your nose or mouth so that they cannot get into somebody else's. And that way we kind of break the chains of transmission and reduce the number of people that get infected out in public. Now, and that's one of the important things I think that I, I try to emphasize with people is that uh, you don't know you're contagious until it's too late. So you, you may wake up today and feel perfectly fine and actually be spreading the virus and then tomorrow feel bad and stay home. But it's too late. Exactly. And I think there's also a lot of confusion with the um, terminology that's been used regularly. You know, people say asymptomatic when what they really mean is pre-symptomatic. There's a lot of reports, you know, asymptomatic people don't spread the disease, et cetera, et cetera, which might be true, people who never develop symptoms. But we do know for a fact that people who are pre-symptomatic, so people who don't currently have symptoms but will develop them in the future, do spread the disease. And you can't possibly know if you're going to be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So I always advise people to just ask, act like you have coronavirus right now and take on the personal responsibility to try to protect those around you. 
Yeah, yeah. That's that's it, 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 one of one of my frustrations is is that this whole you, you, just be a good neighbor to people and and assume that I mean, like my wife has lung cancer. I, I don't want her out and about with people who've decided uh, their liberty uh, requires them to not wear a mask when they they could get my wife sick even if she wears a mask. And and I guess that that's one of the things I hear from people is, oh well, you know, uh, if you wear a mask, uh, you you may you may still inha- inhale the droplets, but my understanding is, yes, you might, but you certainly do re- reduce the risk of doing so. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about reduction. The more people that we can get to wear masks, the less virus will be circulating out in public. So even if masks aren't perfect at protecting you personally, which, of course, they are not, especially cloth masks, and they're not completely perfect at blocking the virus from getting out of someone, the point is that any percentage that we can reduce transmission, we want to take. Because there are going to be people who are going to be seriously affected by this. People like your wife are, you know, um, immunocompromised and extra extra susceptible to having really poor outcomes. And, you know, I just think it's, it's a personal duty and a personal obligation to try to protect everyone as best as your ability. If it's difficult for you to wear a mask, um, you know, try to make other accommodations. I like to tell people, you know, you don't have to wear a mask. You also don't have to go out and don't have to go to restaurants and don't have to be around people like anything that people can take on to try to limit the spread. We really encourage that because it is really just like all of us against this virus and it shouldn't be us against each other. Now, so on Sundays, typically, my, my family, as we wind down, we, we climb in the car and we just go for a ride. The, the kids like to go out and try to spot deer in, in the countryside down in middle Georgia. And my wife typically will open your Instagram feed and occasionally go through and, and listen to you talking about some of the latest research. And I believe I've heard, don't hold me to this, please, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I've heard you one time uh, say to a degree that one of the frustrating things that you deal with as a researcher and an epidemiologist now is that the flow of information is so fast and not all of the studies are necessarily accurate, but they get out there and they cause confusion. And And I actually am curious from your perspective as someone in in the field, uh, is the, the rapid spread of all of the conflicting information out there making it more difficult uh, for you as a researcher? Yeah, I certainly think so. I mean, the difficulty lies in the fact that this is a pandemic, it's a new virus, and so it can be helpful to have access to what we call preprints, which are papers that people have written that haven't been peer-reviewed, haven't been approved, you know, and rigorously checked as good studies. Those get published, and so some people take those as facts when they're not. Now, it's important that we have access to those so that we can communicate between research groups quickly. You know, uh, one group might be looking at something and see a preprint that helps them answer the question of what they're trying to figure out on their end. So that collaboration is really helpful. But I think it gets confusing because there's so much information coming out. Not all of it is vetted. Um, And then things get updated really quickly and people have a hard time keeping up with it. I mean, I'm in the industry and I have a hard time keeping up with it. So people in the general public who are trying to figure out what's best for them and their family, I completely understand how it could be so frustrating that recommendations change. And what right now, what is your recommendation to people? And also in that regard, how do you interpret the data right now that the virus is going up, but we do seem to have a still be having an overall decline in deaths and hospitalizations, although that hospitalization does seem to be going up right now? Yeah. So the way I've described this virus is that it is going to thrive on people's impatience. You know, 
things started opening up. And then several weeks later, we're now seeing this increase in cases and we are doing more testing. But the thing you want to pay attention to, which I've talked about before, is the percent positive. If the percent positive is going up with testing or is exceeding the percent increase in testing, that's when you want to start to um, look at things more carefully and get worried about an increase in the actual circulation of the virus. Now, you mentioned um, that deaths are going down and they had been very low for a while, but I also think give it a week or two and those deaths are going to come up. Um, if more people are getting tested or getting tested earlier, obviously it takes longer for severe disease to develop. And also those people have the potential to have spread it to um, family members or community members that are more vulnerable. And so I think this, this sort of thing just takes time. And so we don't want to declare victory against COVID too soon. We would like things to be, you know, at a steady decrease or under a certain threshold for, you know, at least two weeks in a row before we start to relax about anything. Is there any hope on the horizon in, in your, because I, I know you've looked at a lot of these studies or participated in, in overseeing some of the vaccine trials. Is there anything on the horizon medically right now that that gives you some optimism or encouragement? Yeah, I feel optimistic a lot of the time. I think, you know, this is really a global effort to face this virus. And so there's a lot of work being done by just the absolute best of the best out there. You know, we're getting increasing, uh, increasingly promising treatments for people who are in the hospital, which is good because we want to reduce mortality and reduce the time it takes to recover from this virus. I think there's a several, several vaccines that are in the pipelines that are getting tested, that are, you know, in the process of being checked for safety, um, that are showing promise. And, you know, there's also changes to the virus itself that could potentially, you know, be beneficial in terms of how serious it is. So things are moving incredibly quickly right now, and we're trying our best to keep on top of all of the information and let people know what they should pay attention to and what they don't need to worry about as much. But I have incredible optimism. I do think that this, you know, is not going to last forever. It's just a matter of us being able to adjust our routines until we have a solid understanding of the virus and then can make better long-term informed decisions about how to approach it. You know, as a pessimist, it always gives me encouragement to talk to an optimist, but, but I'm never disappointed by being a pessimist so that's true <laughs> yes yeah it is uh if my, if my wife were in here she'd be rolling her eyes right now um let me ask you one last thing be before i let you go and thank you so much of for course. doing this there's a lot there has been a lot of research but i think some of it has been mixed on kids spreading the virus to adults and, and it seems like i hear a lot that there's no evidence of kids doing this and so we should send kids back to school and yeah the american academy of pediatrics say it was better to have them in school than not and i, I would actually like an, an expert's take on this as opposed to the mixed messages i keep hearing yeah so the kids situation is incredibly difficult because the research is very mixed um, you know, it's not that there's no transmission, but it's definitely a lower transmission. But then you take into account, you know, in schools, kids have a lot more contact, person to person contact than adults do in their day to day life. So that can increase transmission. So it is something that I think a lot of groups are working very hard on to try to get solid evidence so that parents can feel comfortable sending their kids back to school. Um, I will say, you know, as an infectious disease researcher, as an epidemiologist, and also as, you know, someone who is single and childless and the demographic for bars and restaurants, I say close indoor dining and let kids go back to school. If we're going to risk outbreaks or transmission, I think it's important that the kids be allowed to go back to school. It's a lower risk situation and we need to mitigate uh, infection where we're able to do it. And that I think would be a good way to do that. 
Well, listen, I, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. This is actually really helpful, and, and I'm, I'm glad to be able to, to share your opinions across the state on the radio show because, gosh, I, I, I hear you every Sunday coming across Instagram uh, when, <laughs> when my wife opens, and so it's great for everybody else to be able to hear you, and I just can't thank you enough for doing it. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm glad that you reached out to me, and I'm happy to be able to give people um, solid information in kind of a crazy time with information overload. Well, if you see this tattooed lady from Middle Georgia pull up on, on her fat boy uh, and, and want to go for a motorcycle ride, I, that's my wife, and she's safe. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much. Laurel Bristow, uh, Amory University, a clinical researcher. She is an expert epidemiologist. Her resume, she, she's been to Zanzibar in Tanzania, which is just beautiful. Uh, she's worked in San Francisco as an epidemiologist. She uh, went to, let, wait, I got to get this one right, uh, the, the London School of uh, Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, got her master's in science there and the control of infectious disease. She is an expert. My wife actually listens to her on Instagram, uh, follows her videos on Instagram. She does a great job on Instagram, uh, less clean language on Instagram, I, I, I do have to note. In fairness, if you want to go there, uh, you can follow her on Instagram at King Gutter Baby. Uh, that's her Instagram title. But uh, she rides a Harley. Uh, my wife has just uh, adores following her on Instagram because she brings the latest expert advice. And she's right here in Georgia. And as a result, uh, I wanted to get her on so that you guys could actually hear from someone who actually is an expert on this issue uh, and, and hear their take. And I did not know what she was going to say on getting kids back to school. And I just that's encouraging to me that uh, she would rather close bars and restaurants and let kids go back to school and thinks that's good. And man, that 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 gives me encouragement for the school year because I got to get my kids out of the house somehow or another other than just throwing them outside into the ticks in the backyard. They need to go back to school. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Um, so hang on a second. Where is it? Where is it? Uh, I just, man, you know, so when you go to Twitter these days, if, if you go to Twitter, you shouldn't go to Twitter. It is like a, a direct portal into hell. Uh, but if you were to do it, uh, you would see that they now, it the place, it, um, it updates constantly and weirdly. And... Um, so Jesse Taggart, 33, a Black Lives Matter activist, has been arrested for allegedly shooting a person in Provo, Utah. Uh, yet again, this is a white person, and um, it is another white person who is um, affiliated with Black Lives Matters, and that's a problem. Um, Sorry, we have some uh, we have delivery person at our front door who needs to um, someone needs to get the door in our house uh, because it's my wife's medicine and I can see the person. Yeah, up um, oh, now she sees me. Sorry, we're we're signaling and she's she's um, she she's okay. She's she's letting it go. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So, in any event. Uh, and our front door. So, okay, as an aside, we have a, a metal front door, and um, it swells when it gets hot. And it's almost impossible to open our front door. And 
I hear my son, he's trying to, so I have soundproof doors, but they're not completely soundproof. And I can hear my son trying to open the front door and he can't open the front. I can't open the front door. The sucker swells when it gets hot outside. That's how we know in the wintertime, the door just flings open in the summer. Whoever came up with the idea of a metal door for the house? I have no idea. In any event, I digress. So this Black Lives Matters activist, Jesse Taggart, 33 arrested, allegedly shooting a driver at a Black Lives Matter riot in Provo, Utah. Uh, he is filled with Black Lives Matter content. He is charged with attempted aggravated murder, aggravated assault, rioting, firing a weapon near a highway, and more. And yet again, it is another white dude who's a protester for Black Lives Matters. Uh, in uh, in in the, the CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, you had um, a... a shirtless white women with hairy armpits uh, yelling at black police officers that they were race traitors. I wish I was, I can't put the, I don't even want to retweet it because the woman is hideous, but it is a, it is a young white woman with no top on uh, who hasn't shaved her pits, who is yelling at black police officers that they're race traitors. White people, please stop embarrassing yourselves uh, for something that you don't know about and haven't experienced. Uh, this whole idea, by the way, I hate the idea, I hate the word allyship. You're either, you're an ally or, or you're not. And a lot of the people who are doing this, they're not really allies. They just want to feel good about themselves. They just want to feel good about themselves. And they're involved in causes. They don't go to church. They're involved in causes. It really is a religion. A secularism has become the new religion. And, and they do these sorts of things to feel good about themselves. And going to, instead of going to church to get soul fulfillment, uh, these white people don't shave their armpits and then yell at black police officers that they're race traitors. And they, they feel good about themselves for doing that, which is bizarre. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole protest movement thing that's out there right now generally is bizarre. Um, all right, there, I've said it. Now, I want to say something else. I am here the next two days, and then I'm going to take the first vacation, real vacation I've had. Look, I, so I, I nearly had my, my complete breakdown a couple of weeks ago, and my wife made me take off uh, and, and go to the mountains by myself. But I haven't had a week off uh, since Christmas, and I'm going to take it after this week. Uh, when I was in law school, I went to Mercer University, uh, Walter F. It's called the Walter F. George School of Law, people, even though they took the name down. And they're not saying they took it down because they're sensitive these days, but that's why they took it down. The Walter F. George School of Law at Mercer University, that's where I went to school. And I had my best friend in law school had a house in Hilton Head. Um, he had, had been in a uh, in a plane crash, had, had gotten some settlement money. He bought himself a house in Hilton Head, and we'd go down there all the time. And it was great. It is the one place where I can mentally check out. Although still, so I, I'm the type of person where I really need to take a, a, a two-week vacation. I was actually talking to Chris Burns last night for, from Dynamic Money. We, we went to dinner. We had some some business we needed to discuss. And um, he was saying that his family, typically, they're going to go with us to the beach. And they typically, they take a two-week vacation because it takes him a week to really completely unplug in order to then have a week where he's off. And I had a meeting with the pastor two weeks ago, or three weeks ago now, and, and right before I went up to the mountains. And he was telling me he does the same thing, that he takes a two-week vacation because it takes him a week to unwind. And then it takes him a week where he can actually enjoy his vacation. I'm only taking a week. I can't be away from y'all. There's too much news happening. Uh, maybe at the end of the year, I will do that. But I, I think I'm becoming a proponent of this two-week vacation theory. I just can't step away. 
I realize I'm not an indispensable person, but man, I like actually being here and doing this. It's not really work. So I'll see you guys tomorrow and we'll do it all over again with different topics.